Welcome back to another mini episode of Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. I'm Jonathan Bollinger. Thanks so much for joining us. And as always, if you've been listening to both our main free episodes as well as these mini episodes, you know that these mini episodes are used to be a bit of a catch-all, right? To kind of catch up on some thoughts from last time or other episodes, lay down some sort of new territory for some new subject ideas, check in with you guys as is possible, and otherwise kind of keep the podcast rolling as a shorter form so that we can continue to connect with you. So I'll say what I always say, which is thank you so much to the folks who've been downloading the episodes. We really do appreciate it. I'll also remind you that if you have a friend who might be new to podcasting, but you know they may be interested in television history, you know, suggest it. Word of mouth is always good. You know, hey, uh, try Spotify, try Amazon Music, try Apple Podcasts, try Podbean, you know, whatever. And then check out Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. They may enjoy some of the episodes that we've done from either last season or this season, or might just want to sample us through the mini episodes, you know, whatever. So thank you for those that have been listening. We do really appreciate it. And then as always, I remind you that if you want more of us, although I don't know how you you would, because we're releasing a lot of we're releasing a lot of content this uh, this season, you can always support us through the Inside the Box, the TV History Podcast Patreon page. You just look up that name on Patreon, you'll find the show. And then if you decide that you want to get access to both brand new bonus episodes as well as full access to all our archive of episodes, then you would just consider donating a few dollars a month so that you get access to both. And again, we're not asking for much. We're not like some Patreon uh, Patreon pages that are asking for a, a lot of money. It's just a little bit of donation so that it helps to kind of keep us pay, paying for, you know, hosting and, and that sort of basic maintenance costs. So those who are already patrons, thank you so much. We do appreciate it. And I hope you've been enjoying both the bonus episodes and the full archive. And again, feel free to reach out to us on any of our social media. Say hey or ask a question, whatever. I know we've had a couple comment comments on the old school Facebook page, but feel free to reach to reach us through Instagram, you know, or through traditional email, whichever you like. So what I'd like to get into today is a very sort of short topic is this idea of Uh, politicians and television. Now, this is a topic that we have engaged with a little bit here and there across previous episodes. And I'll be honest with you, I know most of you are probably pretty burnt out on the idea of politicians right now, because we are all uh, thinking about, and again, don't want to date the podcast too much, but next year we're going to have a presidential election. And right now everyone is sort of wondering how it's all going to go down. (laughs) And when you consider, uh, along with traditional politicians, sort of politics in general that's happening these days, it also can feel very overwhelming. And we're all, again, probably a little frustrated and a little burnt out by this. But if I'm being honest, the reason that I want to go down this route as far as a topic is because I've been listening to, I almost said read, but I'm actually not reading it, though I did try last summer, even took it out of the library, you know, the big heavy tome, and with all intentions to sit there and, and read it every so many days and get, get lost in it, but it, it just didn't happen, ended up returning it. So this year I downloaded it as an audiobook to listen to on my commutes, 
And uh, that book is Jonathan Alter's uh, biography of Jimmy Carter. Now, like most people, I knew knew a good deal about Jimmy Carter, at least I thought I did. But, uh, you know, as in most biographies, you start to realize that there's there's more sort of detail, there's more nuance there than the sort of easier sort of media narratives that we sort of, you know, learn and retain as a sort of shorthand uh, for particular topics. So this got me thinking about sort of politicians and media or politicians and TV. And then if you'd listen to our episode where we interviewed uh, Emil Steiner about binge watching, he mentions in his book that somewhat famously back in 1950, uh, then governor Thomas E. Dewey from New York actually had a marathon television session that then was an absolute, you know, novelty uh, for politicians because television was so young. And I would even argue it's sort of a rarity these days as well because, well, most people would probably try to go to TikTok to reach the younger folks. Or they might go on something like a C-SPAN. Uh, that's a sort of a dedicated uh, cable channel uh, for, the, for the older folks or, or other more, uh, more salient, you know, media appearances. But just this idea, I don't know, it just really intrigued me. So I just want to go down the basics here. And and if you know this story, well, you know, you can stop listening and <laughs> go tune on and to turn into a, a, another podcast. But I'll give you the bare, the bare bones of this because it was just interesting to me. I, I just love the idea that this new medium of television came around and a politician went, you know what? What if I just don't go away. <laughs> what if I just stay on this TV? Because A, there wasn't a lot of competition as far as channels at that time. And B, just that idea, uh, uh, like with any marathon, right? There's sort of a, there's a sort of an inherent endurance quality to it, right? We're kind of watching, yes, for the content, but also just to see if they can, you know, can they get through it? You know, can they, can they do it all, right? That the length of it is sort of an attraction in and of itself. So I just very briefly want to discuss Dewey's moment uh, with a TV marathon. And to do that, I'm going to do very basic background information on Dewey, more just to remind you about who he was in very broad strokes, and then we'll talk about talk about that moment. And I should also say that on the show page for today, you will find the sources that I'm relying upon uh, in order to provide this, this sketch of, of the moment, okay? So let's start by reminding you some of the basic biographical details for Thomas E. Dewey, okay? He was definitely a man of the 20th century. He lived from 1902 to 1971. He was born in Michigan, the son of a newspaper owner. And he basically grew up as a very educated, articulate, uh, very accomplished uh, uh, young man. And the reason we remember him is that he served as governor of New York State from 1943 to 1954. And we remember him even more so because in 1944 and 1948, he was the Republican Party's nominee for president of the U.S. And we always remember the 48 election because that's when he was supposed to absolutely win. But of course, uh, uh, Harry S. Truman, right, uh, buck stops here, uh, absolutely upset Dewey, and we have that famous photograph of of Truman holding up the newspaper that said, you know, expected, you know, that Dewey Dewey won. Well, 
after he, uh, uh, you know, failed essentially, although he, uh, he was, I believe, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe he's either the only one or one of two candidates who had, uh, uh, the majority of the electoral votes, uh, but ultimately lost something, something like that. Right. It's just, he, he, my point being is he was about as close as one gets to, uh, winning the presidency without winning the presidency. It's sort of sort of crazy. So after he lost that election, he's still governing as governor of New York. And in 1950, he comes uh, comes up against a really sort of nasty, drag-out, bare-knuckled sort of uh, political fight to continue being, being governor. And this is in part why he then turns to the then new medium of television. So here's where I make a bit of an admission, although I'm sure I've said this in the past on some other episode, but I often have a gap in my knowledge or a blind spot when it comes to the history of television. What I mean is, even though it actually starts in the late 40s, and as we're talking about today, it's around in the early 50s, I never think of it as that early. And the reason for that is, is, and this is something from my childhood, is I tended to only focus on those things that were sort of fully formed or were already sort of popular or validated or whatever you want to call it. I kind of liken it to when you're interested in a band or maybe you and a friend are interested in a band or whatever, and they talk about those first that first album or those first two albums uh, where you know things are gelling and you're sort of like, yeah, but the third album, that's really when it all came together. That's really when this other person joined or this producer came in or whatever. And it was really on that album it became the thing that we, we recognize as this band. And I kind of have that same approach with television, which, again, it's terrible and I really have to kind of brush up on my early television history. But for me, it's more like those, you know, the late early period of the 50s into the mid 50s when it really starts to become television as, as I like to think of it. It's not that these early stages aren't interesting. They are. But the other reason, of course, is that there isn't a lot saved from that time. You know, famously, they didn't keep recordings, right? They didn't think they really needed to or had to. It seemed like a disposable medium, especially in, in light or against the power and the love, a love affair for, for cinema. So, you know, it's not like we have a ton of recordings from 1949 or 50 or 51 to really sort of cement that legacy uh, in, our, in our brains. Now, all that being said, we're going to talk about a 1950 moment, and that is when uh, Thomas Dewey, or Thomas E. Dewey, was up against Walter Lynch. Dewey was the Republican. Lynch was the Democratic candidate for governor of New York. And because that f- political race was such a fight, right, sort of the, the way we think of politics as being kind of tough and down and dirty, you know, Dewey decided to use the then new medium of television to maybe separate himself and, and provide a, a, a new persona for himself in a, in a way and connect with uh, uh, potential voters, you know, in a way that was a little easier, perhaps, right? Didn't have to give as many sort of stump speeches, etc. But it was also an extension of what he'd already done in the past. And so here, I'm going to rely on uh, uh, Byers coverage of, of Dewey in his book, which I assume was probably his dissertation about sort of uh, Dewey's political leadership. And so what's interesting is, 
after he unsuccessfully ran for president in 1940, for the following six years, Dewey continued to deliver lots and lots of prepared addresses, uh, more than 200 actually. And what's interesting is that a lot of those were done over radio. Not all of them, but a lot of them were. And you would think that as professional and as accomplished, because I, I forgot to mention earlier, again, this isn't a biography of Dewey, but he had first made his, his name by being this very successful prosecutor and then district attorney who put away a lot of very famous mob bosses. And so you would think that because of all that accomplishment, that radio would be sort of the natural medium for Dewey to sort of increase his profile even more. But that's actually not the case. As Bayer writes, uh, quote, Whereas Dewey's public addresses often aided in developing the type of image he sought to perpetuate, his radio addresses at times handicapped him. And Bayer continues, right? Bayer writes, There was in addition no doubt as to the fine quality of his speaking voice. It was a steadily exciting, fine, manly voice. (laughs) Highly trained, forceful, and deliberate. But Bayer continues by writing, yet it was these very traits that appear to have handicapped his efforts to get closer to the public. To many, his voice appeared so obviously trained, the enunciation so deliberate and precise, the total effect of what he was trying to say so labored and so exact. And finally, Dewey often appeared to be striving for effect to be, quote, muscle-bound with overemphasis, and in some to be emphasizing techniques over sincerity. So this is sort of interesting. If, you've, if you are also a patron for the Patreon, you know I've recently uh, did a, a bonus episode about a Pennsylvania congressman by the name of J- Daniel J. Flood, and we talk about his sort of training as a performer and diction and what effect that had on, on his career. And so this leads Bayer to sort of summarize by saying that while Dewey's voice was considerably more, quote-unquote, virile than Roosevelt's voice, it was perceived to lack the warmth, the sincerity, and the conviction that is so necessary, in Bayer's words, to the homey aspects of radio. So it's interesting because while it certainly played well in the live sort of stump speech uh, 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 situations, rhetorical situations, radio, it doesn't work so well. So then you sort of say to yourself, well, if he doesn't really come across as uh, engaging and with warmth and sincerity and conviction on radio, why would he necessarily come across that way on television? Why would he take that risk? And it's here that I turn to Heldenfell's work on actually not, not 1950, but actually the year 1954, which he calls television's greatest year. But in that work, he briefly talks about uh, Dewey's television attempt in 1950. So I'm going to go in and out here of Heldenfell's uh, actual words and adding my own paraphrase. But basically, Heldenfell explains that Uh, He had the advantage of New York City being a television boomtown in 1950. 
the major networks were all based in New York City, and seven TV stations operated at a time in that city where other major cities like New Orleans, Houston, Phoenix, and Milwaukee only had one TV station apiece. And he also needed every advantage he could muster for that campaign uh, because, as I mentioned, and this is where a Dewey biographer is cited, a biographer, biographer is Richard Norton Smith, who called it, it was the type of campaign, quote, for those who like their politics bare-knuckled, <laughs> okay? So Dewey then goes and assembles an, uh, basically like an ad hoc network of stations around New York City, and in one session, he took questions from the TV audience, which is something that we see now all the time. We, we, it's just a, a consistent strategy, but then was, was totally new. So the Dewey biographer Norton Smith is quoted as, as describing that moment like this. Quote, sitting on a desk, his jacket sloughed off, his, off under the hot lights, chuckling when asked about his mustache and cigarette holder, reeling off facts and figures, Dewey came across as both mellow and conversational. He took an instant shine to the new medium, booking several more appearances before Election Day, including that final 18-hour marathon. And those commenters at the time who were paying attention to his experiment actually came, uh, came back impressed, right? Uh, one, uh, Ben Gross, wrote, This was a new form of vote-seeking, abandoning as it did for the first time in broadcasting the formal oration for the method of the seminar. And another, uh, John Crosby, wrote, Dewey was the first candidate to understand how to use television properly. So what's interesting here is, and, and, and pretty much you know, uh, obvious, is in the one medium, radio, he comes off as very much too professional, too refined, too sort of trying to have an effect on his, on his audience. Whereas through television, he learns that sort of trick that we now sort of know, I guess, with social media, which is there's a performance there, but it's more of a performance of intimacy, right? A performance of casualness that we want to invite you into our homes, although these days it would be literally to our hands, right? Or, or on our screens in a way that we feel connected to you in this sort of parasocial uh, social uh, relationship. But the one thing that was really interesting is that, particularly for the marathon, uh, it might have, this television experiment might have signaled a new day for politics and new new day for how politicians advertise themselves to potential voters. But what was interesting to me is that even the marathon he ended up doing, uh, 18 hours, they already understood that you needed to break those 18 hours down into easily digestible 15-minute segments. And that was already in 1950. So as Heldenfels uh, discusses, uh, using some quotes from that reviewer John Crosby, Crosby notes that uh, when you have to condense that information down to 15-minute chunks, 
that politician had better, quote, marshal his facts in the most concise form. So it really helped to kind of push politicians to be much more what we would call media ready or media literate, as they all are trained these days, uh, in a way that they just simply weren't at the time. And to also note how new the form was, there was a bit of a, a, you know, I won't say, not scandal, but, you know, a bit of a a brouhaha over that, uh, that first television appearance where he took questions from the audience. Because, of course, we know this now, of course he handpicked those, those people, right? Of course the, the producers or, or his campaign managers rehearsed them and made sure they knew exactly what they were going to ask and how they were going to ask it. But some watching that, not realizing it, you know, uh, questioned it. And then when it was confirmed, were, you know, a little surprised or, and, and offended. These days, of course, if any politician does some sort of televised town hall, Right, we know that they are only taking the softball questions or the ones that they're hoping will elicit the the you know f- the spotlight on the on the topic that they they really want uh, to be salient. But what's interesting here is that politicians in the early 1950s had to learn to work well on television, and so uh, Heldenfels notes that those politicians who did not like Taft. Uh, who ended up uh, uh, losing against uh, 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 Dewey and Adelaide Stevenson, right? Their their careers were ultimately sort of doomed versus someone like a, a Dwight D. Eisenhower. They had much better chance for success, and that was proven out throughout the 50s. And I'll just mention this briefly because we've, we've talked about this uh, topic across some other episodes, that by the early 50s, political candidates learned that they would need media training in order to come across well on TV. So, for example, uh, 1952 candidates appeared on a CBS series called Presidential Timber, and basically the format was candidates had a half hour to show off in a format of their own choosing. And uh, Heldenfels uh, very smartly notes and describes this as the common thread between all those uh, politicians' uh, uh, subjects was a, quote, carefully staged informality. And so uh, after watching a couple of shows, uh, we had this comment. Perhaps television and the world of politics may be a little too preoccupied with techniques. And even more so, CBS ended up holding, quote unquote, a school for politicians in 1952, essentially teaching them the fundamentals of the then new medium of television, Uh, Certain details would be like, hey, you should wear a blue shirt rather than a white shirt because it'll look better on on camera or uh, avoid hand painted ties or wearing some crazy Panama hat. Right. Um, And and of course, just the use of basic stage uh, makeup right for the television cameras so that you looked better, etc. And the person that was really big in this time was former actor and director uh, Robert Montgomery. Uh, he had previously been a, a leading man and, uh, and, as I mentioned, a director. And he was really the one who uh, helped Eisenhower become media friendly and media savvy. And I don't have the quote in front of me right, right this second, unfortunately, But basically, it goes like this. 
Montgomery, before he worked with Eisenhower, had actually worked with Thomas uh, E. Dewey. And it was said that had Dewey been elected in 1948, Bob Montgomery and his media training was so important or would have been so important that had Dewey won, that Montgomery probably would have rated earning a cabinet position. And, you know, not a cabinet position later, but he certainly was given uh, all the, the, the credit due to him uh, in terms of uh, uh, helping Eisenhower uh, uh, win uh, later on. So this is a topic that I think I'm going to want to revisit a little bit more down the road. I'm not sure exactly what the focus would be or on a particular politician, etc., but as I said, I, I have this gap in my knowledge of that late 40s, really early 1950s uh, version of television, which seemed a bit of the, you know, uh, experimental period. And I think as we think more and more about politicians and their effective use to sell their messages over media, as particularly television, although these days it would be more like a TikTok, I think it's a really important topic to come back to and remind ourselves sort of in some ways where we first learned this, at least as far as an intimate visual medium that we have situated within our homes, uh, understanding, of course, that radio was already there and, and in some ways performed a similar task, but of course, you know, lacking the visuals. So looking at the time, I think that's probably about it for, for now. I think I've even taken you a little longer than normal for a mini episode, but it's a really interesting uh, topic. I encourage you to look up more on, on Thomas Dewey if you don't already know much. And more importantly, I encourage you to look up maybe some of the sources that I've used or look up some of your own about that interesting period where we were just kind of figuring it all out. Because I think in some ways, there could be some similarities between what we're currently trying to figure out as far as TikTok. You know, sort of what did we learn at the beginning of television as an intimate visual medium? And then, you know, how does TikTok sort of do more of the same of what we already knew in social, uh, from social media? In what ways, uh, you know, has it, has it changed uh, what was previously available? So with that, I'll just thank you again for listening. We do appreciate it. For Andrew J. Salvati, Steve Voorhees, I'm Jonathan Bullinger. Thanks so much, and we will catch you down the road next time. Bye-bye.